truly at Dogcast Radio. If you like dogs, wherever you are in the world, we're the show for you. Hello and welcome to episode 176 of Dogcast Radio. If you've recently discovered us, don't forget that you can find all our episodes and lots more on our website, www.dogcastradio.com. Today's episode is an in-depth interview with Louise Fillion, who trains and works with wildlife detection dogs. Not only is she an expert, but she's set up her own company, Conservation Canine Consultancy, focusing on the use of dogs in conservation in the UK and abroad. It's a fantastic story of a woman's personal and professional triumph. And the lovely thing is that Louise's dogs are almost exclusively rescue dogs. So, without more ado, here's the interview. I'm talking today to Louise Fillion. Hello, Louise. Hello. Hi. You all right? Yeah, not too bad. Thank you. How are you? Good. Fine. Thanks. Fine. Eager to hear about these lovely dogs of yours. So, you have detection dogs, should we call them, but their their work is fascinating. I mean, it's, it's conservation, isn't it, that they do. So, But first of all, before we get to your lovely dogs, let's talk about you because how you got to where you are is a fascinating story. So how did you get into the work that you do? Well, um, I obviously I work with detection dogs and, and sniffer dogs now, but how it started, I, I was at university studying animal behaviour and welfare I actually wanted to be the next Jane Goodall or Diane Fossey living in the jungle with, with gorillas and primates. But coming out of university, it's hard to find any type of job working with animals. Yeah. And I, inst- I was working in marketing in a, in, a, in a pub, actually, and I saw an article um, of a gentleman that had recently set up a detection dog centre very local to me, and he was an ex-RAF dog handler. Hmm. And look, luckily enough, I just contacted him, told him about my experience in terms of what I'd done at qualifications, and asked whether I could just come down and have a chat with him. So we did do. I came down, had a long chat with him, and it wasn't necessarily the most um, enthusiastic chat because it was literally that the, the chat went around the fact that it's going to be very hard for me to get into this industry, being a girl and being a civilian, not ex-military, not the ex-police. So I weren't disheartened by this because I thought, well, I, I've never really thought of working with sniffer dogs because I've always wanted to live in the jungle, you know. Mm. So literally I said, is there any chance I can do voluntary work for you? I need to keep a hand in working with animals. That's why I've done my qualifications. You know, any chance of helping out free of charge would be would be beneficial. And that's literally my breaking point of how I got into it. I did five months of voluntary work then uh, whilst carrying out two other jobs. Um, did as much work wow. as I could do, whether it was cleaning the kennels or uh, grooming the dogs, cleaning the office, doing office work, and then eventually I got involved with training the dogs. Yeah, wow. I mean, that that really is a lesson to anybody who's looking to, to work with animals. It is a, a popular, competitive field, isn't it, whatever you want to do. So you do have to yeah. take, you know, the, do voluntary work. Or, I mean, we've, um, my daughter wants to work in a zoo, and I know in zoos people will take any job. They'll work in the gift shop or the cafe, you know, yeah. and then move to working with the animals because they do so a lot. That's of, what you have yeah. to do. Yeah. A lot of people ask me how do I get into it, and literally it's voluntary. And I spoke to my ex-boss at the time, and he said it wasn't about the qualifications you have. It was your enthusiasm. It was your rapport with the animals. He said anyone could have come then. And, uh, you know, it doesn't matter how many qualifications they have, really, but do they know how to handle a dog? And I don't mean in terms of training a dog. Do they know what to do with a dog? You know, a dog yeah. might escape a kennel. A dog might jump up at you. You know, I, I've worked with a lot of people that are doing qualifications with animals, and it 
actually scared of dogs. Oh. You know, they're scared of animals yeah. or they, they don't want to get mucky. I've had people turn up yes. at kennels in white clothes and Uggs. <laughs> and, um, it's really, you know, you don't need to be masculine to work with animals. You can no. still be girly. Oh, yeah, but you absolutely. definitely need to have a rapport with the animal and yeah. not be scared and be really willing to, to get hands in straight away. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, it's, it's always a good idea to, to go and have some work experience before you sort of set yourself on that career path. Just go and mix with the animals in question. Make sure, as you say, you don't mind getting mucky because where there's animals, there's muck, you know. Exactly. No, can you, can you live with the realities of that animal? Because, you know, it, it is, um, sometimes the reality is different from the, the dream. So, um, but, you know, obviously we think it's, it's lovely to work with animals anyway. So that's your story. And I think that's really interesting. And, and I, I mean, persevere and you can get where you've got. So, I mean, that's brilliant. Um, okay, so enough about you. Let's move on to your lovely dogs. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so what do your dogs do? What do conservation dogs do, Louise? So um, basically conservation dogs help with any conservation need and that can be from surveys and wildlife monitoring to actually helping detect wildlife crime. So we can start on the, on the, on the idea of dogs can be used to detect um, an animal presence. Say if you've got a low abundance of an animal in an area and there's, there's really hard ways of finding it and the existing ways to, to monitor animals or find the presence of animals is actually via the poo, uh, which is known as the scat. Yeah. And this is done in uh, the States a lot and also in South Africa a lot because a lot of animals are quite elusive. So they might never see, for example, a cheetah, but they know cheetahs are there. And how they know that they're obviously by signs of the animal. um, And one of those signs is scats, which they normally you know, defecate quite high up on on items to try and make the presence known. so this is where I got the idea from originally, was I was asked to go to South Africa to speak to a lady called Rox Brummer, who set up Green Dogs Conservation. And at the time, she hadn't set it up, and she was interested in how do I get started. She's a really big dog enthusiast, and, and she was working for Endangered Wildlife Trust at the time. And she asked me, right, I want to train a dog in scat detection, in cheetah scat detection. So obviously going over to South Africa, helping her train the dogs and looking at actually what the dangers that she has, whether it's <laughs> elephants and lions and, you know, um, yeah. predation on her as well as her dog while she's out, it made me realise, why aren't we doing this in the UK? You know, this is a method that people use. It's used in the UK already. They go out and look for the poo of an animal. Um but why aren't we utilising the use of dogs in this? Because in South Africa they are, and there's lots of dangers. It's a, a lot harder. And the environmental factors, such as the, the environment you're working in, as well as the heat. So after I was inspired by rocks, I came back and was like, well, I can't even believe we're not utilising this in the UK. Mm-hmm. And then obviously since 2008, I've been really pushing on the use of dogs in conservation uh, with my uh, previous employer and now obviously going on alone wanting to prioritize dogs in conservation myself um, that's what I'm trying to push at and that starts with say pine martin scats obviously there were sightings in Shropshire of pine martins and there's been reintroduction of pine martins in Wales and it was getting to the point where pine martins are so elusive and people might get a photo but a photo isn't good enough they need DNA they need DNA, and the best way of getting DNA, obviously, one is either a dead animal, which you, you don't necessarily want, no, no. and the other is by the feces. So the feces samples sent away, they get um, anal- an- analysed, and then after that, they can say, right, this is a pine martin, we've got the DNA. But without the DNA, 
you can just still say mm, there is possible sightings of an animal in an area. So um, for since 2010 now, I've been working doing pine martin scat searches, which has been um, which has been brilliant, really. Yeah. So you've doubly not going to mind getting mucky with <laughs> the. the um... The conservation dogs. Well, as a dog person through and through, the idea of dealing with poo is, doesn't, is not unusual. Obviously, that's a daily no. occurrence working with so many dogs. Absolutely. And obviously, with pine martin scat, it's not as unpleasant as dog poo anyway. So it's actually, you know, it's a, it's meant to. People say it's meant to have a sweet aroma, but because I'm working with it a lot, I wouldn't say a sweet aroma, <laughs> but it's not got a terribly uh, horrible scent, if that makes any sense. No. Because at the moment. That's how people detect it. They go out, they find a scat, and they smell it themselves. And they go, yeah, this is pine martin, or no, this isn't. Which is quite funny when you see a group of men um, <laughs> on the knees smelling a poo on the floor. Yes. <laughs> um, and luckily enough, Loon and my dog can do that for me. Yes, which, which you don't have to get down and smell it yourself. That's yeah. And I imagine the dogs are much quicker at going, oh, it's you know, 50 yards in that direction and going there rather than we have to get right on top of it and sort of visually no, the, yeah, the, the things with, with humans, they have to actually be on top of it. They need to find it before they actually can smell it. And the smelling really, it's kind of, it depends on the person. We, can, we think we can smell something so good and it's not necessarily the case, but obviously with a dog, they've got 250 scent receptors We've only got 5 million. So 250 million compared to the 5 million, we can't imagine how they actually see their environment. It must be amazing. And obviously, at the same time, a dog that's trained in a particular scent, like Luna, she's trained on bat carcasses, pine martin scat, as well as great crested newt. But with the pine martin scat, she's been doing it since 2010, and she was still only a little puppy. And she has probably grown more scent receptors for that particular scent and there's, there's no machine in the world that can evolve like a dog. So my machine, my tool, so a lot of people call working dogs tools. I don't class them as tools. She's my colleague. But yeah, as a yeah. tool, she develops a stronger sense of smell for that individual target scent the more I work her and the more wow. I train with her. So I think that's just amazing. I mean, yeah. some instance, we, we, we went and helped an Irish PhD student and um, she indicated uh, in an area, and I was like, a full-blown indication, you know, I'm fully confident. But there was a lot of pheasant droppings around, lots and lots of pheasant droppings. And, you know, a lot of people question, are you sure she's not interested in the pheasant droppings? And I was like, well, actually, where she works, there's a pheasant breeding, so I'm sure she's not bothered by the pheasant droppings. Yeah. Anyway, we, we searched around, and we had to do our own kind of investigation, and it turned out there was a pine martin scat underneath the pheasant dropping. Oh, wow. And she was indicating at that. And the the PhD student I was with was amazed, was like, this is amazing, how good is that? You know, we'd never, ever have looked there. And and that's the thing with dogs for conservation, they're unbiased, you know, that's one thing, they will never be biased on an area. And they're non-invasive, the fact that I can go out and search a large area with a dog... To, to be able to get search teams to go and search that large area and be confident that they've searched it, you'd need a lot of people. So that's a lot of footfall in an area that might be restricted. You know, it can cause much more, I don't want to say damage to the environment, but it can have a bigger effect to the environment yeah. than me and a dog. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, I, I, I like the word they're biased because, as you say, dogs aren't biased. They just listen to their senses and, and sort of follow mm. them. Because um, I've talked to... Um, Claire Guest does uh, medical detection dogs. And, yeah. you know, some of their... Claire hasn't said this. I've talked to people who have, you know, a medical detection dog. And one person I spoke to, the 
the the specialist, the medical, you know, the doc- doctor who was looking after mm. her, kind of went, oh, we don't need that dog in here. We can look after you. We can <laughs> find things out. And this person ha- actually ended up in a crisis uh, with their particular issue and you just think trust the dog because the dog we don't even know for sure what it is they're they're picking up on but they are and they're doing it reliably and they're doing it faster than the machinery we've got in you know like the exactly yeah the diabetic detection dogs do it faster than the the machinery won't show you a a problem the dog's saying no you're going to have a problem i can tell there's a problem coming and you know so trust them they are amazing aren't they it is it's funny how we get a lot of questions of trust i mean even even um tests and machines can fail and they, they do quite a lot but we seem to have this uh, ability to really question a dog. But with the conservation side, what's really confused me, I've been working with dogs for over 12 years now, so I've done explosive searches, drug searches, cash and tobacco searches, live body searches, cadaver searches. I've done everything, and then I've got into the conservation area because that's my expertise. Mm. And when I've been doing searches for wildlife, whether it's been using for bat carcass detection or pine martin scat, I've had a lot of people question, oh, what's the efficiency of that, though? What's the effectiveness? Mm. You know, how good is your dog at that? You know, will your dog be correct? Which it kind of surprises me because when I was doing searches with my explosive dogs at a big event in London, not one person came and questioned my efficiency and effectiveness <laughs> of my dog. <laughs> you know, no one questioned, oh, are you sure your dog will actually find any explosives? You know, w- will it indicate properly? But as soon as it comes to wildlife, even if it is a scat, I do get questions, you know, can your dog really find it? Mm. And it, it surprises me. And I think people are worried about dogs in environments where it might be a conservation requirement, such as animals and things like that. And, yeah. and that's where, when you're a specialist dog handler, you have to train your dog for its environment. Yes. You know, you can't be a pet owner and just pick up your dog and say, I want to start doing these searches. My dog really has got a good nose. Because it's not just about the nose. It's about the whole package. It's about making sure your dog doesn't chase any animals, you know, doesn't chase rabbits, doesn't take chase squirrels or sheep or anything. And also that your dog is happy in these environments, you know. Some dogs can actually be more happy in a home environment, in a garden, and then when you take them out into the big wild world, can actually be more fearful or can get anxious. Mm. Or you can have the opposite effect. And um, I think that's why it's important to know a a working dog or a a dog handler, they're specially trained. As a dog handler, I've done years of training to become like how I am, and plus I'm still learning every day. And the dog has to go under so much intensive training constantly and also to make sure we're not training them too hard. You know, you need to consider the welfare days where Luna says, right, I've had enough of this now. You know, you know, can we, can we leave it? I have to listen to her and say, right, we'll leave it today. Yeah. Uh, so it's important. Yeah, it's really important to listen to your dog and to realize it, is, it does have to go under a lot of training. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that, that relationship between you, the fact that she can sort of tell you, no, look, I'm not in the mood today and, and that you listen. I think that's brilliant. That's, you know, she, as you say, she's not tall. She's not like, oh, I'll pick this spanner up and use this today, whatever mood the spanner's mm. in. She's a dog and she's got her own little exactly. yeah, feelings. And I, I think uh, the working dog world used to uh, call dogs a tool, a tool to use. And, mm. you know, it was literally like a, it, it wasn't another being. And to me, it's a, it's a being. I've always been like that. As soon as I joined my previous company and I was there for a long time as a director and head of training, you know, I was doing everything regarding the dogs. My main focus was to make sure people didn't have that old school, I don't want to say military uh, mm. military way, but it, it was. It was the old school way, yeah. and I needed to make sure that was changed, and it wasn't like that. And, 
your dog was allowed environmental enrichment, whether it was in the kennel or out of the kennel. The dog needed to go to hydrotherapy or have canine massage. And it's not mollycoddling a dog. A lot of people think, oh, I'm not mollycoddling my dog. It's not. It's not at all. And no. The more you put into your dog, the better you get out, without a doubt. And you have to listen to your dog. And I, I've never been a person that likes compulsion with a dog. Yeah. And I would never really class myself as a dog trainer because I've just been a mad dog woman I'm normally known as. <laughs> um, because I allow my dogs to show me their natural behaviours. If her indication is that indication, I'll allow it. You know, I don't like to instill a sit indication because sometimes, you know, we're taught to make sure the dog sits as an indication. And to some degree, if you're dealing with explosives, you need the dog to indicate passively. So you don't want it to touch that explosives at mm. all. And I understand sometimes you need a bit of strength behind you to say sit and stay. But if my dog doesn't, doesn't want to sit, but it wants to freeze, it wants all four paws on the ground and it wants to freeze, I will allow that behaviour. Yeah. With Luna, she picks and chooses on what day she wants oh, to. She normally does a lie-down indication. But saying that, if there's a lot of brambles or if there's a lot of nettles, she won't. She'll sit. But at the same time, she has had days where she'll stand. Mm. And that's why, as a handler, I need to make sure I can read her. If yes. I can only read her if she does that one indication and when she does anything else i don't i don't understand her that's not a good dog handler really so it's like all my dogs there's some days you get them out and you can tell no their mind's elsewhere today oh they they could just be tired you know (laughs) we have days like that and to make sure you get the best efficiency out your dog and the dog's going to work to its maximum you need to be a handler that understands your dog and say no you know today we can rest today yeah yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's a lovely way of treating them. Um, you mentioned the bat carcass detection. So what's that used for, Louise? So many years ago, we got approached by a, um, an ecology group asking about doing a pilot study to detect uh, dead bats on wind turbine sites primarily hmm. because there was, there was a lot of research coming into wind turbine use and this was when they were becoming more and more popular in the UK and a lot of, obviously, uh, conservationists were worried about collisions of wind turbines with, or bats with wind turbines. So they wanted to do a study to work out whether it was collision-based or whether it was a thing called barotrauma, which is literally because of the air pressure changes near a wind turbine, whether the bats were dying oh. due to, I know it sounds awful, but lungs exploding yeah. or, or even yeah. imploding. Um, so they wanted to do a study. So literally, we were, we were asked about this. So I started training my dog straight away. I got a bat carcass license, started training the dog. But due to the circumstances, we ended up um, getting put on the back burner because they wanted to, to use some trainers. They were only training after three days. So, do you know, like mm-hmm. civilian dog trainers, you know, they would train them after three days and then utilising them. The, the thing is with that, I'm a true believer. To be a dog handler operationally, you need to do six to 12 weeks of handler training yeah. without a doubt because a lot of studies are done and then it says the dog didn't work very well but then when you re- research the study it turned out the handler wasn't trained mm. so i'm like well hang on a minute you know there's no part of a trained dog if the handler isn't trained because you're just as important you know yeah. you're a team you're a teamwork so anyway after that i had a fully trained back cast dog so i've been then contacting um wind turbine organizations and groups and ecologists that are utilizing bat searches because they already conduct bat searches on wind turbines and that's using people so walking up and down looking Mm. for bats very labor intensive 
Very, very, and also very, it can be costly as well. A lot of people think search dogs are costly, but if you look at the methods that are employed already, it's very costly, very time-consuming. And also you have to think about your your footprint, you know, your green footprint yeah. and how it affects, you know, how many people are turning up in a van, how many people are walking up and down. You know, it, it actually it has a bigger effect. And mm-hmm. I was working um, in communication with a company in Portugal called Bio3 that were doing bat carcass and bird carcass um searches on wind turbines and literally they've done a study to compare how a dog team works in comparison to a human team and they worked out the efficiency of a dog team so one person and a dog was 96 percent efficient so in, in other words there was 100 bats in an area 96 percent of those uh, 96 of those bats sorry were were were, were found were detected mm-hmm. but with the human team so a person going up and down in the same area they were only able to find 11 bats. Wow, that's out of incredible. 11, out of 100, sorry. Yeah. So, you know, 11 bats compared to 96 bats. So yeah. you say 96% efficient in comparison to 11% efficient. We dare to turn around and say, how efficient are they? Do they really work? <laughs> oh, my exactly. Goodness. And that's when I saw that study and I read up and I spoke to them and, and talked to them, you know, making sure that it was, it was done properly and not biased towards the dog because you can have that and and i realized that wow you know this is something that needs to be done in the uk and there was different protocols and search methodologies coming in regarding um searches on wind turbine sites and it's still happening now you know people are only just still getting to used to you know what methods can be used on wind turbine sites so that's something that i can offer is uh back carcass searches and also training handlers um, and the dogs to do back carcass searches, you know, for large ecology groups, because um, if you've got your own organisation, you're a large organisation dealing with a lot of wind turbine sites, you need to have full-time back carcass detection dog teams yeah. working for you, um, because it can't, it's not just a one-off and then that's done, it needs to be done three days consecutively, it needs to be done different times of year, because obviously the bats have different types of movement throughout the year. Um, so, you know, that's another thing I can offer is uh, the, the training and um, dog training for that purpose. Yeah, yeah. Wow. That's, I, what, the, your dogs amaze me. They really do. And they're so nice to meet in person. Um, okay, so we, we, there's we, the, the scat detection, which we've talked about, sort of the Pine Martin application in, in the UK and the bat carcass. Yes. Um, but, you, I mean, you do... St- your dogs and you together do so many things. So, what other things do you do, Louise? So we've got um, we've got the the bat carcass detection. We've got the um, pine martin scat detection. We've also got great crested newt detection. But the dog that I had training for that, she was too eager to get in the water. And obviously, when you're dealing with great oh, crested newt, you don't want that to happen. So. Um, that's an example of how not every dog is suitable for every job. You know, yeah. she loves the water, diving in as soon as we go near the water. So I had to stop her on that, but she was, you know, indicating, detecting great crested newts uh, on the surface of of the, the ground, also um, underneath the ground. I mean, in in shallow cracks in the in the mm. soil, for example. Um, But then I've also got dogs that are in training for other aspects, and the other types of inquiries that I'm getting are like. Um, uh, illegal poison detection dogs, for example, you know, because there's lots of birds of prey that are getting poisoned. Mm. Um, and, and then the list goes on to, can be natterjack detection, um, invasive plant species detection. You know, it, it's all about finding what the requirement is at the time, you know, uh, 
what is hard for us to find as humans? A lot of time we don't like to admit we're struggling, yes. but <laughs> I'm always on the lookout to see what are we struggling to find? Is it an invasive uh, plant? Is it an invasive animal? Is it a disease? You know, and, and why are people finding it hard to find? You know, I've had inquiries for uh, bees nest detection as well, you know, mm. um, and there's, there's loads of things, absolutely loads of things that you can utilise dogs to find. Yeah, yeah. The one that really, you know, makes me, blows my mind kind of thing is the whale scat detection. Because, my goodness, I mean, it doesn't, presumably, it doesn't float on the top of the water. So how, how do dogs detect no, it, that? It, yeah, it does, actually. Oh, does so it? basically, for years, yeah, I've been, I've been um, looking at, obviously, throughout the world, you've got working dogs conservation. Then you've got um, conservation canines in Washington. You've got lots of different organisations, a lot in the States that use dogs for some amazing, amazing things. And one of these things was whale scat detection. And obviously, um, we probably don't think of ourselves being a, a place for whales, but we do have lots of whales off our coasts. And one of the, the ways of surveying animals is by the poo. And the reason for that, you can find out what the diet is. You can find out if they've got any disease, any parasites. You can actually find quite a lot of, about the animal via the feces. And obviously with whales, there's no other way for us to actually find anything out about them. You know, we can't sit and observe them in the natural environment because the, the ocean's so large that before mm-hmm. you know it, they're gone. And obviously you have to realise that when you are observing an animal, most of the time you're actually affecting their behaviour, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, you're being invasive to their normal behaviours. And that's why it's very rare to actually observe natural, natural behaviours because as soon as animals know you're there, we're altering it. So the idea of uh, doing scat detection and whale scat detection is something that we're trying to push for to get offshore here and utilising dogs. And the thing that you need, you need there to be a presence of whales, for example, and obviously it can't be, you're not just out there and think, right, okay, hopefully we'll find some scat. It doesn't work like that. There need to be sightings of whales in that area. And what what happens is the scat actually rises to the surface and I think about 15 minutes, 20 minutes maximum, and it can actually be less than that. Hmm. And then it sinks again. So you've literally wow. got a very short period of time to, to get the scat. And obviously it's not like a dog in the forest that can run around and jump on top of it and say, right, it's here, I'm indicating. We need to be out on a boat. The dog needs to be trained to be uh, happy on the boat, be confident on the boat. And also the dog needs to have taught me as a handler, rather than the other way around, taught me as a handler what their indication is going to be. So, for example, uh, when I've done water search dogs in regards to cadaver, the dog needs to lean towards the area where it scents, you know. Mm. So it's on the end, on the tip of the boat, and if it leans left, that means we need to move the boat left. So the idea, we're wanting to really get involved in this and showing a lot of uh, whale trust and organisation and conservation is that we're really eager to show them the use of dogs for whale scat detection. And it's something that's not known in the UK, but if you, if you research it, it's absolutely um, doing wonders uh, in the States and it's obviously I think you've got a big presence in Norway as well but I know at the moment there's scat dogs working out at sea with the conservation canines and their uh, the Washington based organisation um, but it just shows you that dogs can be can be do anything it can yeah. be out at sea it can be in the forest it can be you know in Africa it can be anywhere and I think the idea of working them out at sea would be wonderful uh, because it's another aspect as well and for me, anything that I can learn uh, on top of what I already know is just, it excites me because the dogs, um, 
surprise me every day, really, with yeah. what they what they can do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is incredible. It, it brings home as well. You really have to have that close relationship because not only have you got to be able to read the dog, the dog has got to trust that you are, you know, capable of doing that kind of. Because I, I do think that if you're if the dog picks up from you that you're not understanding it, you're not getting its message, then yeah. it gets frustrated and it stops bothering. Yeah, and, you know, and that, there's one a of the biggest there. Yeah, the biggest problems in the detection dog world is handler error, um, and I, a lot of handlers, from what I've experienced, don't like to admit it was their error. They can you can tend to blame the dog a lot, mm. and this is something long term. I want to get involved in, in running courses to to help fine tune detection dogs. Um, and also build a bond between the detection dogs and the handler. Because not everyone, in all honesty, not every dog handler loves the dog. Like, he's, he's, he's a mad dog person. Yeah. You know, people have, might have got into it because it's a job they got given, and they have to then learn how to bond with their dog. But also learn how a dog changes from what you train it at for that 12 weeks that you're training your dog and the 12-week course that you're on. That dog, it's like when you learn how to drive. You learn how to drive, but then you actually only properly learn how to drive when you actually uh, pass your test and you're, you're, you're actually out there. It's the same with dog handling. It's only when you're out there. And the dog changes. The dog might pick up bad behaviours. You as a handler might pick up bad behaviours. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's really important to, to continue that bond and not expect the dog to understand you all the time you know mm. and especially as you said if you have a bad day yourself or if you're a little more impatient on a day that can really affect a dog's working ability and uh, what was great with me in my in my uh, last role is we used to film each other mm. and or after we'd done a search we'd actually go back to the other person watching and say did I do anything wrong there is there any way I could improve that because it shouldn't be just about how the dog did it wrong no, you know no. and plus when you're handling, and especially if you're doing raids, working with, you know, uh, border control or the police or the military or trading standards, sorry, I've got a little dog crying here, yes. okay, um, that you, you're quite nervous, you know, you might mm -hmm. be the first one into a building after they've put, they bash the door down, so your emotions can have a massive effect on the dog, yeah. and it's really important to understand that, and the dog isn't a machine, it's not on autopilot, it's got feelings, it's got emotions, and you need to be aware of that and watching the dog's body language. If the dog is showing anxiety before it even goes into that building, you have to realize that if a dog's showing anxiety and the muscles are tight, that can actually affect its olfaction, so its, it's scenting ability. Mm. So if the muscles are tight and he's a bit rigid, his nose isn't going to work as well. So it's, we seem to forget that, you know, um, someone involved in fitness will always warm up and always cool down yeah we need to make sure we do that with our dogs as well when we're working our dogs whether it's conservation surf searches whether it's uh, contraband searches we need to make sure we warm that dog up ready and we also cool that dog down um after he's finished so he can relax yeah yeah and of course i, I mean as well as making sure the dogs are happy we've touched on this a bit but you know it is of great benefit for the wildlife that we're trying to study and conserve to have the dogs involved isn't it yeah i think what we it's people that want to know really why we're using dogs for conservation searches and there's many reasons dogs are more effective 
than humans at searching. So basically, without there's no point trying to pretend that we're really good at searching because we're not. We actually no. got we have got limitations. But the dog is much better and, and it's better qualified to search for so whether it's nests, whether it's carcasses, whether it's actually wild animals, or whether it's wildlife crime, so smuggled animals. They've got the better ability to home in exactly on where that target scent, let's call it, is. So they can home in on it. They don't affect their environment as well. They don't need to uh, knock things down, knock trees down, or undo loads of bags to, to search in bags at uh, an airport. They can search on top of their... their we, we call it non-invasive, so their non-invasive search technique. You know, for drugs detection dogs, they can search up and down people without actually making them do a, you know, a strip search, and they yeah. can detect drugs on that person that way. So it's the same in the environmental searches. Say if a dog's out there searching for cheetah scat, for example, it can search in that environment without having any effect on that animal at all. It will have no effect on the cheetah or the cheetah's natural behaviours. If anything, the, the cheetah might come later on and have a sniff around to say, hey, what was happening around here? You know, um, but then it's, it's, it's non-invasive. It gets in there, you detect the scat and you take away the scat and then that's done. That's, you know, there's no darting of the animal. There's no, I mean, the scat detection is kind of an alternative for collaring. And if you think collaring can cause a lot of, you know, mm. um, stress to any animal, really, darting it, collaring it, then leaving it back out again. But you can have dogs that are trained particularly for certain individual scats. So, for example, if you reintroduce an animal into an area and you want to see if that animal's still doing. As long as you've got enough training scat of that individual, you can get your, your dog to find that one individual scat. So it's not just about a generalizing on, on all pine martin scats. It could be one pine martin scat, you know. Mm. Um, so we can actually really use dogs to help scent discriminate in any yeah. type of role we need. Or if it's the wildlife crime, you know, I've been involved with a lot of dogs to, to help anti-poaching. So whether that was in Gabon or whether that was the start of setting up something in Tanzania uh, and also in South Africa. It's about using, using dogs to be the quickest, most effective and non-invasive method. So you don't want to disrupt people, so general public that are going through a train station or an airport, because you, you want it to be quick and efficient for them. But you also want it to be so good that... If anything tries to get through, you will, the dog will detect it. Yeah. I mean, one of the dogs that I trained detected an ivory bracelet in a suitcase going through the airport. Wow. Okay, people might say that was just one ivory bracelet. For me, one ivory bracelet is harder than a, than a container full of ivory. Oh, yeah. yeah. Because it's a smaller scent and obviously mm. it was hidden within a lot of things. And so that was, that was really good. That was a big pat on the back from, from that we'd done our training right. Yes. And then on the other hand is when they find, you know, a haul of another 18, 19 species of, of animals hidden on a truck. And they, they indicated on that as well. So I'm like, right, so they can, they can indicate on a big seizure and also a small bracelet. So that's yes. what you want from the dog. You want to make sure that it can detect anything. And... That's why dogs could be used for anything and should be used more widely mm. for conservation. Um, a lot of people worry about the cost of it, but to be honest, if we don't conserve the animals that we've got, we won't have them anymore. No. So I think really no. it is important to conserve them as much as we can. And it's not really the, the cost of the use of dogs um, isn't much more than the, the search methods that are already employed, whether it's just human search teams or or x-ray machines, you know, they normally cost much more than a search dog team. Yeah, yeah. And as you say, the dogs are so effective. It's 
you're saving money to, to use them, aren't you? Definitely. You will. You will save money in the long run. Um, mm. You might at first have a bigger outlay, but in the long run you will save money and that dog gets better and better and better at it. But you have to make sure that you keep up handler training and that's what a lot of people, whether it's, you know, African countries, sometimes they don't realise that it's the constant handler training and reteaming that you have to do to make sure that they're keeping up standards. Humans become quite lazy and become quite expectant that, oh, my dog will do the job for me. And I think that's what we need to make sure we empower the handlers, whether it's UK handlers or um, handlers in African countries, to empower them to re make them realise what an important job they're doing, especially in the wildlife crime department. And I think sometimes the kind of, we don't really think about these heroes that are working relentlessly all the time yeah. in dangerous environments. You know, they're, you know, they're actually targeted by people because as soon as you see them handling dogs, like, right, we're going to target them. So it's kind of quite a dangerous environment for them. Mm -hmm. Plus, they're having to do quite a high-energy job. And usually, they're not highly paid, and but they're doing a very, very specialised job. And I think sometimes it's like the unsung heroes, you know. They mm -hmm. need to probably get a little bit more credit than they actually do. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And as you say, without that work going on, and if we don't support that work, we're going to lose species, and that's awful. And it will have perhaps you know catastrophic effects on the environment for us as well. So you know, even if, even from a purely self self interested uh, perspective, we need to consider. Exactly. Yeah. 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 A lot of people say, "Oh, we haven't got money in conservation, this, that, and the other." But at the same time, we need to because those animals aren't going to be there for our next generations. And then we'll be sat there going, why didn't we do something more? Why didn't yeah. we do something more? Obviously, ecotourism can help, uh, you know, tremendously in keeping funds going to either the small towns and stopping people from wanting to poach. But it is hard because if you've got a high demand in certain countries that we won't even go into yeah. for certain products like ivory, mm. it is hard because that demand's so high that a person get asked to go and get me some ivory, I'm going to give you this much money. They probably don't want to do it, no. but at the same time, they're in different situations like us. You know, yeah. I think sometimes yeah. we're a little bit naive to our... Uh, our situation that we realise here in the UK, but in uh, you know in African countries, it's a different matter completely. But I think if you know organisations and we help raise money to put into more dog sections and more handler training, I think long term it would have a, a benefit not only in utilising dogs and you know some most of these dogs are rescue dogs, but also putting them to a good cause in helping with conservation. And in a way, the use of dogs in conservation. A lot of people actually are happy about giving money to that, giving to charities. And like, oh, look, we're giving to this charity and they're utilising dogs to detect this. It's kind of um, a, a way of really interesting people in it, going, oh, I didn't realise we could use dogs for yeah. this. I mean, I've been stopped at the supermarket and I've been logoed up. They go, oh, what do you do? And, I'm, and I've talked about the ivory detection. And they go, why do we need to find ivory? And I'm like, this is this, is this day and age we still don't yeah. realise these yeah. situations and it's not only educating you know we talk about educating african countries i don't think it is i think it's no. educating everybody including our children here and you know i'm soon going to set up an um, education program utilizing uh, my dogs for that i've got here and training them in ivory and products of animal origin to take into schools because i've done school demos with drugs dogs before now and and explained about how drugs dogs work and yeah. and this is to stop children doing drugs so why don't we start young and stop children getting involved in wildlife crime yeah. you know 
it, it's not only other countries that happens, it's, it's, it's us as well, it's on our doorstep. So it'd be great to get children to realise, you know, we need to conserve our animals. You know, it should yeah. start, we, we should start young. And that could just be the animals that we've got in our, in our own country. You mm-hmm. know, I don't think people realise about the pine martins that we have and the polecats and the, the other beautiful creatures that we've got on our doorstep because we don't normally know about it. No, no. No, I think you're right. And you're absolutely right. If you can educate children and if you can inspire children and open their minds to that early on, you know, they take that in. They, they're not sceptical and they do take it in and it opens their minds to that whole possibility of, yeah, we do need to look after things. We can't just go through life thinking about ourselves. So I think you're absolutely yeah. spot on. Educate the kids. Yeah, definitely. And it's, you know, it's, it's also working with zoos as well. Zoos have a big impact on helping conservation projects abroad, you know, um, but it's about working, working in collaboration with everyone to make it so we can educate here and abroad of, of why we need to conserve the animals because, you know, we don't want to have to be sat down looking at a book one day and saying this is the elephants that we used to have or this yeah. is the rhinos that we used to have and then people saying, but why didn't we do anything about it? Yeah. You know, when I was living in South Africa recently, um, it was literally down the road that there was a, a rhino poach. There was actually three rhino poached and one ended up getting found still alive, just on the brink of death. Yeah. And she's still in rehabilitation now, and they, they can't find a way of sealing her big open wound on her face. Oh. And this was just down the road, and it was off because the week before I'd driven past and seen the, the rhinos and thought, wow, isn't it crazy that we can yeah. see? And this was on a, on a reserve, you know, this was actually mm. on a reserve. And I, and I couldn't believe that it was on our doorstep. You know, it's yeah. not just something that happens in the middle of nowhere. It's actually on our doorstep, yeah. you know, and we, we need to all stand together to try and make a, a difference with it. And it's not something that just happens elsewhere. And no, it's for the sake of us and our next generations, really, you know. Mm. Um, and it's not about spending millions. It's just making sure the money that you do put into charities get utilised properly. Yeah. That's what it's about. Yeah, definitely. You, you talked. You, you mentioned um, just before about training scat for for the dogs. So, can you tell us a little bit about sort of how you how you take a dog from sort of being a lovely dog that sort of plays with a ball or whatever to being this? I mean, not machine, but you know this this. I'm going to say machine because I can't think of another word. Yeah. But this machine that, that that sense things and detects things and and um, tells you it's there. So, how do you get from you know what do you do on day one? How do you take them through? Well, it is hard because um, I like to get my dogs from rescue centres or unwanted pets or someone's getting rid of a dog. You know, the scenarios like that. I don't, as much as it's lovely to, to go and get a puppy and then it's from a breeder and things, I just don't, I don't feel right to do that. That's not my cup of tea at all. Um, having worked with dogs for so many years and seeing so many dogs in pounds and then so many dogs getting taken to the vets to get put to sleep. And mm. I've had phone calls from the vets before now saying, can you come and assess this dog? It's going to get put to sleep this afternoon because the owners don't want it anymore. And I'm like, what's wrong with the dog? And said, nothing. So I'm like, well, I'm going to come and pick the dog up. And they said, yeah. you're not going to assess it. I said, I can't be, live on the fact that that dog might not survive if I assess it and it doesn't make a search dog. So you take the dog. But it doesn't always work like that. Not every dog can be a search dog. And that dog in, in question weren't any good as a search dog. So we rehomed and we, we searched and searched and found a perfect home. Mm-hmm. But what we tend to look for, if I'm looking for a dog, say as I go to a rescue centre, and I'll normally ask the, the, the handlers and the carers that, okay, send me your most crazy dog. And <laughs> when I say crazy, 
I mean, your dog that hasn't got any concentration, your dog that's into everything, you take it out and it's into everything, and the one that you feel will be hard to be placed in a home environment, because that's what it's about. It's about getting the dogs that aren't right for home environments. Yes. So... Basically, once you get the dog, and it's hard when it's in, in, in its rescue centre environment because it's obviously highly stressed at that point, highly, you know, its skin and its muscles are very tight, so it's hard to get a true understanding of what the dog is like there. But what we want to do is see if the, the dog is mental for a ball. And I know when they say mental for a ball, a lot of people don't like the, the term mental for a ball, but it is. It's really mental for a ball. Yeah. You want it to be obsessed with a ball. And for the last 12 years I've been doing it, it, we have only worked with dogs that are toy or ball obsessed. You have got the option of going to the, the food reward, and I think Claire Guest used food reward with the, the, the cancer dogs and things like that. And there's reasons for that as well. But with the work that we were doing, we needed high possession, high prey drive for a ball. Mm. And whether that was due to, you can have a quick turnaround that way, or it's literally you, you're kind of dealing with a certain type of dog and they all can kind of be trained in the, in the same certain way. But once the dog is crazy for a ball, you, you hide it under lots of things and see if the dog can actually find it. Because some dogs might be crazy when it sees the, the ball running off, but when you hide the ball, it's like, I don't know what to do now. Yeah. I don't know what to do. The, the ball's gone and they might just go off and go to the toilet and do their own thing. So you want a dog to be actually uh, inquisitive, you know, where's that yeah. ball gone? Where's it actually hidden? And then see if the dog is excited by that. You don't want a dog not to enjoy this environment. You want it to actually, you know, really find it fun. But you have to do this in three-minute or five-minute sessions. You know, you can't go out and do 20 minutes, 30 minutes with this dog because yeah. it's just going to get bored. So, and you always end on a high. You always end where that dog gets that ball. And probably opposite to what a lot of pet dogs trainers, you know, you always say, you always win the ball, make sure the dog doesn't win the game. This is opposite. The dog always wins. The dog yeah. is the champion. The the dog is the king, you know. And yes. this can always have, have effect on the dog. The dog becomes quite cocky and a bit like, yeah, this is, you know, I'm the man. <laughs> and when you've got dogs that are social dogs with other dogs, um, you put them back in the, the, the playpen with the other dogs or in your garden with the other dogs, and they can get a bit, you know, uppity with the other dogs, like <laughs> I've just been winning the toy. So you have to make sure you manage the behavior, you know, and and not just launch them in the compound with other 10 dogs because they might think they're a bit too big for their boots. Um, but it's, it's literally about ball play. And then you get the dog out again, show them the ball, and they realize, right, this is what it is again, and go and hide the ball. Every single dog I've ever worked, and it's probably been over 300 dogs I've worked, every dog is different. Yeah. And it's, everyone says, oh, why don't you write a book about how to train detection dogs? I said, because it's not black and white like that. Yeah. I said, I'm still learning every single day how to train detection dogs because every dog has a different method on how it prefers to be trained. Mm. So, you know, dogs take different times to, to, um, to train. Some dogs, I mean, I've trained one dog, an explosive dog, on all the explosive scents within four weeks. Wow. And then other dogs might take in 12 weeks. You know, yeah. sometimes yeah. the penny doesn't drop. It takes a long time, and then the penny drops, and then it all fits in together, which is wonderful. Yeah. So it all comes about play. And, you, you, you know, originally it was all about possession. You wanted the dog to have crazy possession. But at the same time, sometimes, you know, a dog that is too crazy and too possessive can go the other way around and make a dog quite anxious, and especially in this game where you know, we're, we're expecting a lot from the dog and demanding a lot. You don't want it to be anxious. Yeah. Um, so it all stems from that. But there is ways of training dogs using uh, food reward. And I've got a dog at the moment. She's, 
she's great with the toy, but I'm thinking, actually, she's going to be a great candidate for food reward, you know, and, yeah. and utilising the food reward. There's, there's always things that worry me about using food reward, though, especially if you're doing with conservation. I don't want my dog at any point to start salivating when I'm doing work in the conservation area. Of course, yeah. So if I'm searching for a live animal, I don't want the dog to salivate. I don't want the dog to start salivating because I don't want any of its natural instincts to kick in in that way. So that's why we always used to use um, a ball. But then at the same time, if you think about it, using a ball and a game, it's increasing prey drive, isn't it? It's, incre- yeah. it's in- actually increasing the, the chase drive. So it's kind of catch-22. It's, it's about being aware of, of your dog in its environment. You're expecting it to work and seeing what's best for that dog. But... Um, the use of food reward is, you know, is, is equally um, useful as well as the, the ball reward. The thing is with food reward, you kind of always need that food reward, don't you? Yeah. Um, and, you know, we can always drop a, a treat from a trainer, reward our dog, can't we? And then, you know, we've got disaster. Yeah. But a ball, you've got a ball in your pocket. You've always got a backup ball, you know, to... Uh, and it's also letting the dog pick what the reward wants to be. Yeah. And in all honesty, a lot of the dogs that we've had in were has been rehomed to us or um been left at a rescue centre. It's because they're obsessive. And we may as well say it as it is, they're obsessive. Toys have jumped gone on under the sofa so they've attacked the sofa and ripped yeah. the sofa apart. Yeah. Or they've left the dog in the day, the the balls run under the kitchen uh units and they've scratched away the kitchen units. It's that that we kind of kind of want to it, it's that we want to push them right okay you allowed this ball but you have to earn it you know you have to work for it and so eventually once they're searching for the ball you end up putting a scent with that ball so whether it's the scat or whether it's a, a, a dormouse nest that I've done before or whether it's um, you know a product of animal origin whether it's um, a lion bones or lion skin or ivory yeah. And you, you put the ball with it, not necessarily on top of it, but, you know, so it can smell, smell the, the target odour and then it's got the ball. And over a matter of time, the dog starts going out. And every time he picks up the ball, he's like, hang on a minute, I can smell something else there. And sometimes the dog kind of, we call it consolidation, it turns back around and has a smell at that after it's picked up the ball. I'd say, what, mm-hmm. is, what is that smell that I can smell? And we love that. We get dead excited when you've got that consolidation because you think, yes, he's noticed that there's something there every time he picks up the ball. And then you literally remove the ball and let's see. Let's remove that ball and let's see what that dog does. And that dog happily goes around its searching area. You know, and this area normally has to be the happy training area. Yeah. And the training area that he's used to and he feels confident in. And so he goes around it and he smells that smell. And it might just be a millisecond that he stops and has a smell. And at that time, that's when you need to reward the dog. So that's when you need to throw down that toy yeah. or if you've used clicker training you need to mark that behavior yep that's the one come and get your reward and so it starts like that as much as that sounds really 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 simple <laughs> it's never that simple oh, no. it never <laughs> is that simple no, there's okay. always things that they do and you think well i've never seen this before or oh isn't this strange or we've had dogs that go in and start scent marking right on where you've hidden the scent and you're like oh my goodness what what, what on earth's happening yeah. um well, you, you, you have to go gradual with each dog and go at their own set pace and see where they're happy with. And some days the dog isn't working. You know, you might have done weeks and weeks, the dog's on all the scent, it's ready to go operational, then get it out and it's, it's, not, it's not smelling the sense. Um. But what you don't know is whether it's been playing and it's jumped up and he's jarred his neck. And obviously yeah. all the muscles in his neck can affect his olfaction. And so he's like, well, I can't smell today. Yeah. 
And it's it's to it's to make sure we're aware that 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 dog that is a being. It's got muscles. It's got everything that we've got. There's some days that it might not be working. Um, and so it's never the dog's done wrong. It's just the dog needs a a break. Yeah, it's not right that day. Yeah. Talking about a rescue dog, I've just rescued um, Henry, um, a Springer Spaniel. He's only yeah. just turned one. And uh, talking about dogs that w- don't make great ho- uh, home pets, yeah. <laughs> that's a typical example. Um, he's just got, he goes 100 miles an hour all the time. He's got so much energy um, and he's, it's hard to direct him and you need to constantly direct him. He's been out playing with my dogs and everything, but then he just gets a bit too much now because he wants a little bit more from the dogs, wants a little bit more, and then that's when they can end up, you know, being a bullying scenario. So that's when you need to kind of get involved and say, right, Henry, that's not the behaviour to do today. And it's literally you need to direct that behaviour into, okay, let's play with your ball, let's put these scent items out, let's get you searching for it because utilising the nose and the olfaction actually tires them out. A lot of people think, take your dog for a walk, put him on a field, throw the ball for 30, 40 minutes, and that'll tie them out. Do you know what? You could do that with Henry. Not a chance. Not mm. a chance he can come back. And he's, he's probably worse than he was before you took him out. Yeah. It's about the mind stimulation and the, and the brain. And he's so clever, so, so clever. Um, it's about really getting him utilising his nose. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I think that's, we, we miss that a lot in the pet world that we think, oh, a good long walk, you know, and that's done. But as you say, you need to get them using their, their brains, whether that's sniffing or looking for a toy around the house or, you know, whatever, or looking for the kids in the garden, you know, whatever. Definitely. Yeah. And I think a lot of scent work groups are starting up now. And I'm running a course soon for, it is for, for dog trainers um, about utilizing the nose it's about detection dog world and everything but it's about utilizing a dog's nose because mm-hmm. it's not always about physical stimulation no because sometimes no. that can actually go the opposite way make things worse or you can cause injury to your dog if you're yeah. expecting it to go 100 miles an hour it's about making the mind work and we'll, we'll be surprised how clever the dogs are and how yeah. they can catch us out and literally a bit of scent work for every dog and i've said this for years i mean i've said this to rescue centers that I've worked with that have been so good because we, we, we showed them how we do assessments of dogs and they went, right, we're going to start doing this. Yeah. And I said, that's brilliant because that's even good for dogs that won't make great sense yeah. like search dogs. They make, they make terrible search dogs, but they would love this game. And especially when you've got nervous dogs. I mean, Luna, my Pymatis cat dog, she was a very nervous dog and I got her, um, her breeder, um, she'd been bought by uh, this lady, but got returned to the breeder and just left with her. She was meant to just be boarding with her, and they never came and picked her up. Oh, and okay. I uh, knew this person, and she said, do you want to come and look at this dog? And I said, she's not going to make a good search dog. She's absolutely terrified. And they were like, oh, they felt so bad. You know, they're a really good, renowned breeder, and they were so shocked how this dog had been left from, like, 14 weeks old, and she was actually terrified of women and terrified she'd just oh. been left in the garden. Anyway, she said, can you, can you not take her, you know, and, and look after her, basically? So I did, mm-hmm. and I was, obviously, that's the occasion I've got a dog from a breeder, but it was actually, in a way, a rescue dog. Yeah, yeah. And um, I built her confidence up by doing search work. It, I thought she would never make a search dog. I built confidence up, just got her winning the ball, finding the ball, saying, yeah, well done, good girl. She loved the praise. Yeah. She actually loved the ball, but she loved the praise more. Yeah. And then I got her to, that's where I got into the Pine Martin scat work because I just saw that there was Pine Martin sightings in Wales. I live in Wales, so I was like, right, can someone send me some Pine Martin poo? Yes. And um, 
and I can start my dog training just because it's fun for her. Anyway, I struggled to get the poo at first because a lot of the uh, charities that were working in the Pine Martin area had said, oh, no, someone from the office has already tried this and it doesn't work. Oh. And I was like, well, I have had many, many years training detection dogs in many random sense, so I'm sure, I'm assuming I can probably make it work and obviously yeah. when I get the Pine Martin scat yeah we made it work straight within four weeks an organization employed us to go out and do some search wow. it was way too early for us but you can never miss an opportunity no, so we did no. try it but now when I put the harness on her which is her cue to work it's like her uniform she's so confident she people say she's a different dog from in yeah. your house to what she is out working yeah. And she is, and it's so beautiful to see. So I always say to people that I might have a scared dog or a really shy dog, is do some scent work, and they go, oh, no, they need to be confident working dogs. I said, no, it's not about working dogs. It's about getting your dog scenting, using another of its senses, that usually when a dog is stressed and anxious, they don't want to use the nose. They don't yeah. use the nose anymore. Mm -hmm. So it's teaching them, use the nose, actually a good distraction, you know, and it's a good kind of empowerment for a dog. And um, it makes them aware of the body as well, which is great. So I, I do always say to people, just do a bit of scent work. Get them finding your keys in the house. I'm sure that would help everybody. <laughs> yes, wouldn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. That's what we need. Key detection dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Key in person phone detection. Oh, yeah. yes. Yes. <laughs> um, Louise, that's been absolutely fascinating. I, I mean, I loved meeting your dogs and meeting you, obviously. Yes, I have to. <laughs> you are very nice, but I, I did mean, enjoy meeting the dogs more, but never mind. Wonderful. <laughs> um, and it, they do fantastic work. Um, we, we've discussed a lot today. I know we haven't covered everything. Is there anything else that you would like to, to say? No, it's just to maybe check out my Facebook page of Conservation Canine Consultancy. I have my amazing website, which is in the process of being constructed, mm. trying to make sure it's absolutely perfect before it goes live. But uh, please keep an eye on what we're doing. We hope to be collaborating with some great charities and organizations, and we'd love to get people involved in that. And uh, just keep an eye out for where we're doing presentations and demonstrations and, and come and say hello to all the dogs. We've got, we've got Luna, Hetty, Bo, Thule, and, uh, and Henry, and... So it'd be lovely to, to meet people, really, that have the same interest as myself. Yeah, definitely. And I can recommend uh, coming to say hello because, I mean, it, you, you are very interesting and the dogs are lovely. So it is great. If you do see um, Louise's anywhere, do go and say hello because it's a great Oh, brilliant. Experience. Thank you. Yeah, that is brilliant. I loved it. Thank you ever so much for that, Louise. And the best of luck because I know you've got big plans and, and you know, you're just going to carry on and carry on. So the best of luck with it. Thank you very much. Tears for your support as well. Wonderful. Louise has achieved so much, and I'm sure she has many more achievements in her future. If you'd like to find out more about Louise and her company, Conservation Canine Consultancy, we have links to her Facebook and Twitter pages on the Dogcast Radio site. We'll definitely be keeping track of Louise and bringing you news of how her dogs are helping preserve wildlife to make the future brighter for all of us. Until next time, look after yourselves and your dogs. Thanks for listening to Dogcast Radio, available from www.dogcastradio.com. That's D-O-G-C-A-S-T radio.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, and wherever you are in the world, we'd love to hear from you. You can do so in a variety of ways. You can contact us on Skype with the ident Dogcast Radio. That's all one word, Dogcast Radio. Radio.
by email, you can contact me on julie at dogcastradio.com. When contacting us by email, if you have the facilities, please record your questions or comments and send them to us as an audio file. That way we can include them directly in our programme. We can accept most formats, for example, WAV, MP3. All these methods of contacting us can be found on our website, which is www.dogcastradio.com. And as ever, the final word goes to Jenny. What do you get when you cross a loaf of bread and a dog? A purebred puppy.